Beloved, happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. Thank you, uh, Gary, for that good shepherding wisdom to remind us that uh, this one day out of the year we can celebrate God's common mercy in this country as Independence Day, and we are celebrating and worshiping Dependence Sunday. A uh, good reminder that every day, every moment, our dependence upon the Lord is ever present. And it's interesting, when we think of the 4th of July, when we think of independence, it's in the context of authority and submission. As I understand it, basically the pilgrims came over here to the New World from Europe to be able to worship biblically and freely to escape authoritarianism. There's a difference between authority and authoritarianism. And that is behind, and what is in fact the revolution, the American Revolution, except a war on unjust authoritarianism in the context even of worshiping. And I can think of this even in this present day and age. We can think of, if you're familiar with the current stories, there are faithful pastors in Canada that are either behind bars now or have been behind bars for weeks at a time because they basically understand when it comes to submitting to rightful authorities that God has placed over us, is there a place where we say, no further shall we go? And basically when the state commands what God forbids or when the state forbids what God commands, that is when the child of God must respectfully defy the authority that is instructing them to go against the word of God. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We are getting towards the end of this wonderful letter that the Apostle Paul has written. We had seen back in the first part of the book the indicatives of God's sovereignty, especially in chapters 1 through 3. Now, chapter 4 and forward, we see the imperatives of our responsibility specifically what we are to be and do based upon what we are and have. And what we have here in chapter 5, verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 9, is God is focusing on relationships. He is addressing six different groups of people in three pairs, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, or employees and employers. In each of the case, he addresses the member the group member of the pair that is to submit to the vested authority given to the second member we understand first and foremost whether we see how god created man male and female in his own image from genesis 1 28 forward all the way through the new testament certainly in the beginning part of this wonderful letter from the apostle paul to the church in ephesus that we are all one in Christ. We're all equal in Christ, and there are still particular orders. Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters, citizens and governing authorities. And we understand that in this context, our passage this morning is the second part of verse 23 and verse 24. God addresses the wives in verses 22 through 24. This is part two of a sermon couplet to wives from this passage. And we understand that in all areas of Christian walk, that the world, we are always targeted by the world. The world wants us to be like the world. The world says, in essence, be like us, 
think like us, speak like us, dress like us, act like us. And especially in an area such as this, in the first and fundamental organization, institution ordained by God from which all others flow, namely the husband-wife relationship. This is where the attack of the enemy is the greatest, whether it's Satan or the world. But beloved, for us, by God's grace and mercy, we understand as God has removed the scales of darkness from our eyes that His Word is authoritative and sufficient. We understand that our job is to listen to what God has already said, not tell God what we think He should have said instead. And one last element, beloved, if you are here this morning, if you are blessed to be married, understand this, that your Christian marriage is one of, if not the clearest living illustrations of the gospel in God's created world. The sermon title this morning is The Wife-to-Be and the Woman-to-Pursue, Part 2. The wife-to-be, if you are blessed to be a wife, this is a reminder of what God would have of you from this passage and some other portions of Scripture we will look at. If you're a single woman, this is the kind of woman you should pursue to be, not so much the state of being married, but the virtues that God elaborates on here and we will see elsewhere. If you're a single man and you desire to be married, this is the kind of wife that you should pursue. If you are blessed to be a husband, this is the kind of wife you should continue to pursue and encourage and love and pray for and support your most precious gift at the human level God has given you. Beloved, follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. This is the Word of God. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, we know from last week, or we know if we know the Bible, if we've read Genesis and forward, that we all together, male and female, young and old, we are all made in the image of God, and we are all redeemed by the grace of God. Husbands and wives are equal in created dignity and equal in redemptive privilege. We have an ordered equality based on creation. That's what we looked at last week in the first verse and a half. This week, we're looking at this ordered equality based on redemption. Now, what we saw last week was the outline, the flow of the text was God begins, verse 22, with a command. Then he gives a comparison, and then he gives a cause. In verse 23, for, because, reason why. So, command, comparison, and a cause. Now, as we pick up in the middle of verse 23, we go back in reverse order. We pick up the cause again, and then another comparison, and then back to the command. If you're interested, grammatically, it's called a chiasm, and when Raymond does his Hebrew class, he can tell you all about that. But that's the flow of the text. The intent here, beloved, as we look again at the cause, another comparison, and then the command is that you know who to be and you know whom to pursue. It's a reminder to all of us that there is no greater gift that God can and does give a home 
than a godly wife, a godly mother. There is no greater gift at the human level that God can give a church than godly women. There's no greater gift that God can give even a society than godly women. It also answers the question, we will answer the question as we look at this and look at other portions as well, what is the root cause of greatness in holy women? And then lastly, when we zoom out for a moment to verses 22 through 33 of God's charge to the wives and God's charge to the husbands, we realize that this is a beautiful picture of husbands lovingly leading and wives joyfully submitting. Let's as we begin to unpack this, uh, look again at the cause, the cause. So, so still here at the end of verse 23b, when we read, he himself being the savior of the body, we know this flows from what we saw at the beginning of the verse. For, for, this is the reason, this is the justification, this is Paul answering the question why he gave the charge to the wives back in verse 22 to be subject to your husbands. And putting together both clauses of verse 23, we know that Jesus is the head of the church and the one who is the head of the church is the Savior of the body. And beloved, this is all under the umbrella of God's sovereign wisdom where God made the marriage for the husband to lead and for the wife to follow. And in the context here with Jesus being pointed to as the Savior of the body, we understand that in the case of Christ being the Savior of the body, it is about redemption. It is not about repression. And that's what the world would say to a submission, headship situation in the marriage, but that's not what God says. That's defacing the goodness of God's plan. Christ's authority over the church is not to subjugate, it is to save. And especially in chapters 1 through 3, when we see how Christ wielded his authority and his power, we see that it is for the church's benefit and blessing. And that's the backdrop behind this charge that he is giving here, this first cause that he gives in the instruction to the wives to be subject to their husbands. Uh, this is a body befitting the head. This is... A church befitting her savior, and this leads to a wife befitting her husband in the economy and plan of God. Now, beloved, we know, we should know that Jesus is Lord and Savior. You cannot separate the two. He cannot be Lord without being Savior. He cannot be Savior without being Lord. When he says here that the church is subject to Christ, that's his lordship. But Paul's emphasis here in what we're looking at here is more on his saviorhood rather than his lordship. This is more about the care of Christ rather than the control of Christ. It's more about responsibility rather than rule. And even as we think of this image, and we've mentioned this before as we've been going through Ephesians, that there are are many illustrations and analogies that God uses between his people and himself. But this is a uniquely Pauline analogy of Christ being the head and the church being the body. And we understand physiologically that the body derives life and vitality from the head. So also, the church derives her health and the church grows into maturity by virtue of Christ being the savior of the body. And in the context of his 
status as Savior, even being spoken to from the great charge to the husbands in verses 25 through 33, Jesus loves the church. Jesus gave himself up to the church. He sanctifies her. He cleanses her. He presents her. He provides for her. He cares for her. And again, that will be fleshed out beautifully in verses 25 through 33. In the same way, beloved, dear wife, your husband's loving and sacrificial concern for you, for your well-being as a spring of spiritual life should be a spring of spiritual life and shalom for you. The husband is the provider. He is the protector. He is the prophet. And one thing is we will remind ourselves that this first cause here is independent of the husband. Even just now, I gave some different exhortations, subtle or perhaps not so subtle, towards the husband. And God's command to the wife here, God's charge to the wife here is independent of the quality of her husband because it's based upon the quality it's based upon the quality of your savior and the same goes to the husband as well so that's the cause always the cause goes back to god his eternal plan of redemption his sovereign decree from eternity past and to jesus christ as the lord of glory that's the cause now we have the comparison another comparison and we understand at the heart of all relationships and organizations, there is authority and submission. This is the normal activity of all relationships. You can think of traffic lights. You can think of a police officer directing traffic. Yeah, no matter how much someone would want to thumb their nose at traffic lights or a policeman, if people understand physics, they're not going to encounter a semi-truck going 60 miles an hour with their human body you can think of the worship team we have up here or of a choir it, it there's a authority and submission nature it's part of this unified whole that is put together with direction and guidance so also all human relationships are modeled after this but beloved understand this there is a beautiful and powerful dimension to authority and and uh power and submission that among christians that is not present anywhere else again there is a beautiful and powerful dimension to authority and submission within a husband wife relationship with a wife husband relationship that cannot be found anywhere else for the glory of god and for witness to the world that's why paul says but as the church is subject to christ as a simile uh, like in the same way at the end of verse 22 he said as to the lord wives be subject to your husbands and then the comparison as to the lord here he says but as the church is subject to christ so again paul is pointing back to christ again he's pointing the individual wife beyond the husband to jesus the christian wife beloved submits to her husband ultimately for the glory of the Lord of glory. That's the reason, the intent behind this comparison. The church, we understand, operates under the authority of Christ. In the same way, a Christian wife operates under the authority of her husband. And dear wife, your heart towards your husband is a witness to a lost and dying world of the church's heart towards Christ. 
That is the power. It is for your joy. It is for your blessing. It is for the encouragement and blessing of your husband and your children. And it is for a witness to those outside the church that are in eternally desperate need for salvation to understand the gospel. Now, husband, parent, master, or employer have vested authority, authority vested in them by God according to his good plan. And this vested authority is also an authority that is subsumed under the authority of Christ. The wife, child, and slave or employee has a vested independence. There is freedom, there is emancipation in the newness of life that we enjoy in Christ by virtue of the new birth. And there is independence within the framework God gives, but this vested independence is also subsumed certainly under the authority of Christ and in the plan of God under the authority of the individual person or entity to whom we are to submit. And beloved, we mentioned this last time, but we must mention it again that human submission never implies inferiority. It's about order, not ability. Now, when we think of our submission to Christ, we understand that we are infinitely inferior to Christ. We understand it is all about his ability, not our ability. But at the human level, that's where the comparison breaks down. There is no sense whatsoever of inferiority. And it is, again, not about ability. It's an active submission, not a passive submission. The kind of submission that God commands of the wife and the child and the slave is to be joyful and voluntarily, voluntary. It's not to be begrudgingly. Now, we can think of Jesus. I just used Jesus as an example of as we submit to him how infinitely more worthy he is than us. But we can look at Jesus from his humanity and look at him as the ultimate example of submission because Jesus, the man in his humanity, excuse me, in his humanity, voluntarily submitted to unjust authorities because he entrusted himself finally to the ultimate authority that he knew to be true and just, namely God his Father. That's the pattern that is set behind us. That's the oomph, that's the thrust, that's the galvanizing enablement or empowerment or encouragement that we have when we think of how we must submit to unjust or imperfect authority above us and mark this beloved our submission to god is learned by our submission to others our submission to god is learned by our submission to others you parents will understand this you instruct your children you shepherd your children in the fear and the admonition of the lord and part of that is enforcing that they be obedient to you and there's all kinds of wisdom where you give you know, wiggle room and freedom to fail and, and all those different dimensions. But as parents, we understand ultimately the reason why we are shepherding our children is not for the children to glorify us or even ultimately for them to obey us, but for them to learn obedience and submission to God. That's why Solomon said the father that spares the rod doesn't love his child, he hates his child because he's not teaching his child the fear and admonition of the Lord. Now, 
back in the context of wives and husbands or men and women beloved understand god has designed women to be under the shelter protection and authority of men that is particular women under the authority of particular men not all women under the authority of all men in the context of shelter and protection that's at a broad level in 1911 the great ship you all know this quite well titanic sank and overwhelmingly there were hundreds of husbands that died so that women and children would be saved the list of the survivors of the titanic were overwhelmingly women and children the list of the souls that died on that fateful night on the atlantic were overwhelmingly men now among those men that passed away I'm sure many of them were Christians. I'm sure many more were not Christians, but that was a time where the culture at the time was more influenced by this dynamic that can't be denied, that women are to be under the shelter and protection of men. And as I said, under the authority as well, but that is particular. So not all women under the authority of all men, daughters to fathers, wives to husbands. I remember when my beautifully sweet Rebecca was a teenager. She had a friend of hers that uh, became a very good friend over time, but when she first met this friend of hers, Rebecca was sharing a story that her friend, this young lady, this teenager, was working at a restaurant, and there was some creepy old guy manager that was behaving completely inappropriate. And Rebecca shared the story with me, and I said, well, does, does your friend have a dad that you know, can step in? And as it turned out, uh, she didn't. I, I offered to Rebecca, I said, I'd be happy to go talk to the creep on, on her behalf. She <laughs> didn't take me up on it. That's, that's okay. Back on task, understand this, beloved. Men, now, unquestionably, women are physiologically weaker than men. No matter what the world may say, no matter what the Olympics may say and all the rest of it, we don't want to go too far in that digression. That is a physiological reality. But understand this. In God's economy, and the motivation for men is men don't protect women because they're weak. Men protect women because they're important, because they're precious, and especially a wife, a daughter. Or, or even if it's you know, someone that's not a wife or a daughter, then they would do that. But again, the ultimate reason behind men protecting women is not because they're weak. It is because they are so tremendously, preciously valuable and important. And then let's for a moment also zoom back out uh, to this entire passage. So Paul gives the wives of Ephesus, God gives you wives these commands independent of the husband. But when we zoom out and look in the whole picture, even in the context of the comparison, even in the context of Christ being the Savior of the church, the wife is called to submit to a husband who is called by God to die for her on a daily basis. So there's cause, there's comparison, and we circle back around to where we began. There is the command. Again, this is what you are to be and do because of what you are and have. So also the wives, at the end of verse 24, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, 
Depending on your Bible and the translation, you might see the words ought to be in italics there. So one more time, Paul again is using the verb hupotasso, be subject to, voluntarily arrange yourself under the authority of. And he is expecting the reader to supply it in the second clause. Back in verse 21, we saw the word be subject to, or the phrase be subject to appear there, and then the reader, we, are supposed to fill it in in verse 22 as the translators did. Same thing here. Just a side note, I think the New American Standard translators would have been better served to add must be to their husbands rather than ought to be, but that's a side point. Beloved, in the context of this submission, understand this, women, wives, husband, men, everyone. This is not an unthinking obedience to the husband's rule, but rather a grateful acceptance of his care. And dear wife, your submission to the protection and provision of your husband's love does not detract from your womanhood. Rather, it positively enriches it and enhances it. Feminine submission is not weakness. Male headship is not domination. Masculine headship never demeans the wife. Masculine headship exalts and elevates the wife. But we'll save that for the message to the men. And beloved, I will say this. This kind of marriage, with husbands lovingly leading and wives joyfully submitting, will produce the best children, the happiest marriages, and the most effective witness to a lost and dying world. Beloved, God's plan for the wife is perfect. Now, one other element of this, uh, we don't have time to fully elaborate this, but understand this. God's plan for the wife includes being a homemaker. Not restricted to being a homemaker, but it includes being a homemaker. For example, in the famous Titus II woman, if you've heard that phrase before, Titus II woman is a more mature in the faith woman that is encouraged by God through Paul to Titus to help come alongside the younger women and to encourage them. And a godly woman is encouraging, a godly older woman is encouraging the younger women in Titus 2, 5 to be workers at home. Or we can think of Proverbs 31, which we read last week in our scripture reading and prayer. <clears throat> and the Proverbs 31 woman, for example, we know wasn't merely barefoot in the kitchen. She would go out and she would consider a field before she would purchase it. She was industrious. She had an eye for external beauty because she was so beautiful on the inside. But when you look at Proverbs 31, verse 10 to the end, clearly the primary domain, the target sphere of influence for the Proverbs 31 woman, for the Titus 2 woman, for the godly wife, is the home. This is your main ministry. Not saying it's your only ministry, but it is your main ministry. And beloved, the enemy attacks this as well. Modern culture defies God's design in creation and God's plan for redemption. Uh, the modern culture says to a stay-at-home dad, you're so brave. The modern culture says to a stay-at-home mom, why are you wasting your life? Those are lies spawned from the pit of hell. And let me make a flat-out definitive statement. I was having fellowship with uh, Tom earlier before and I was mentioning that this is to the wise, but even as I have a sermon to the wise, I can't help but little, have little uh, encouragements to the husband pop out. Let me make a flat-out definitive statement. Husband, you should discipline yourself so that your wife never has to work. 
Now, I did not say so that your wife never works. I said so that your wife never has to work. Very important difference. I understand there are different circumstances. I understand there are trials and tribulations in life that comes. But if you're, if you're in a situation, men, where your wife has to work, understand that it's not God's plan. Again, I'm not saying wives can't work, but if she has to work, you need to do what you need to do. Discipline yourself. Pray before the Lord. Maybe set different expectations for both of you together as a family to make it so she does not have to work. And even as I was thinking about this, I thought of a godly man in our church some few years ago. I wasn't doing anything around this, and he came up to me, and he himself came under conviction and said they were in that situation, and he wanted to work hard, do everything he could to make it so that his beloved wife didn't have to work. And it's been a blessing and a joy. That was a blessing and a joy and encouragement for me at that time. And it's been a blessing and joy to see how God has blessed that man, blessed that couple, blessed that family going forward from that. Well, back here, at the end of verse 24, God gives us the nature and the domain. He says, in everything. There's not some kind of compartmentalization here. Wives, be subject to your husband in the matter of finances or in this matter or that matter it says in everything it's a sweeping nature with a comprehensive domain and it's the same type of qualification that we see for example when god gives charge to children and to slaves in colossians in colossians 3 verse 20 children be obedient to your parents in all things verse 22 slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth now Having said that, does that mean we take a woodenly literal understanding of everything? Beloved, as good students of the word, whenever we come across the word all or everything, the Greek word pos, context defines the extent of it. The context defines what is meant by that. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 5, you read the words that all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Now, we clearly understand that doesn't mean that every single human being in Judea, every single human being in Jerusalem were being baptized by Jesus and were confessing their sins. Rather, People from all types, the young and the old, the men and the women, the rich and the old, the spiritual leaders, from all types. So that's also the same thing here. So we need to be very careful. We don't compartmentalize the submission. At the same time, we realize this does not mean that a wife must subject to a husband in some area that's harmful or sinful. We talked about this before, using the illustration of the state. If the state commands what God forbids, or if the state forbids what God commands, then there needs to be a respectful defiance of that. Again, the example right now is the Canadian government forbidding faithful pastors and faithful flocks from gathering together to worship together. Same in the context for wives. That's why in Acts 5.29, when they were told to stop preaching, they said we must obey God rather than Man, Our allegiance, first and always, is to God. Now, having said all that, how does, and, and there are so many examples and there are so many different scenarios, I understand that we need more, we need something greater than the wisdom of Solomon to answer those. 
And the good news is you have something that is greater than the wisdom of Solomon. You have the word of God, which contains in part the wisdom of Solomon and a whole lot more as well. So this is where we go to. But let's talk some brass tacks. How does a wife effectively make sense of submitting to a husband who's never submitted to his duty in Christ? Now, this could be by some kind of overbearing, domineering lordship. Or it could be at the opposite end of the spectrum, a, a weaker-than-water total wimpiness and a complete unwillingness to lead at any level. How is a why supposed to navigate through that? Turn for a moment, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3. I cited 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 last Sunday, but I want to read up to verse 5 to give the fuller picture here. 1 Peter 3, verse 1, Peter says in the same way, and as we mentioned last week, he's pointing back to Jesus Christ in his humanity, submitting to the unjust authorities here in this world. That's the example. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And then in verses 2 through 4, he brings out the power of the internal beauty over the external beauty. Verse 2, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, and let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. God. And then in verse 5, he gives the effect of this. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Beloved, this is the inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. This is outward beauty always being subservient to inward beauty. Now, this is not saying that we're all called to some kind of frumpish holiness, okay? We know the Proverbs 31 woman had an eye for beauty, and frankly, I think the men in our culture are more kind of geared towards frumpy holiness or frumpish holiness than the women, but we'll save that for the words of encouragement to the men. No, this is the true beauty of the inner person. This is the unfading jewelry of a gentle and quiet spirit. This is a sparkle of joy in the eyes of the beautiful. And notice the effect. This is, in a sense, a sermon of the wife to the husband. It's not a sermon spoken with words. It's a sermon demonstrated by behavior. Her sermon doesn't go in to the husband's brain through the ear gate. It goes in through her, the eye gate. It is him seeing what she does. You see, for the wives, for all of us, it's very easy for people to hear what we believe. It's way more difficult for people to see what we believe by how we behave. And this is the charge to the wives. And I mentioned last week that I love this verse, and I've actually in my life have used this directing to husbands even more than wives. This is to wives, but the principle is the same. It's not the words you say, it's the behavior you display. And the disobedient to the word husband, the unsaved husband in this scenario sees the outward change produced by an inward transformation that he can't see. It goes from the inside out and it affects the outside 
in. Beloved, it's the incense of heaven when God's people pray and when God's people behave nobly. That's the charge to the wife here. Turn back again, if you would, to 1 Samuel 25. Part of my nefarious reasoning in reading this historical narrative in our public reading of Scripture was to lay a foundation for our study here and for this extended illustration. Abigail, Abigail, the servant that was concerned because he knew David was going with 400 armed men to slaughter all the males in the household. He went to Abigail because he trusted Abigail. She had earned his respect by her life. The servant has a great respect for her judgment, and he seeks her out in this time of crisis. And by the way, at the tail end of the story, David also has great respect for Abigail after she, she comes to him. Verse 35, he says, I have listened to you and granted your request. But the point here is that Abigail commands the attention and respect of David. Now, she, did, she was a beautiful woman in verse 3. God tells us she was beautiful in appearance. But it was not her, maybe her external beauty, maybe, you know, pause David for a moment. But it wasn't her external beauty. It was her internal beauty, her gentle submissiveness and tremendously great wisdom. She exerts tremendous influence on King David with no authority. She's humble and she's gracious. In verses 21 and 22, we read before, David basically makes a vow that he's going to kill all the male members of that wicked man Nabal's household. And understand this, David has no legal, no moral, nor any biblical justification to do this. It would be an act of bloodshed and violence. It would be a stain on this man of God. And we know that David had some very significant stains in his life. This would have been one of them except for the intervention of an astonishing woman. Abigail humbles herself. She doesn't come to David in verse 18 and 4. She doesn't come to David claiming her rights. She doesn't come to David and say, you're on a sinful course, you need to repent. And she was a wealthy woman. She could have, from a world standpoint, appealed to her rights and her status. But she's so humble. Look at verses 23 through 25. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And now, that's fascinating. She had no true guilt or blame in this tremendous sin. But just like Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, who identified himself with the sins and the travails of the foolish people of Israel, so also Abigail identifies herself in the household and in tr tremendous showing of strength and courage. She says, forgive me and put the blame on me. And listen to the words of your maidservant, verse 25. Do not let my Lord please pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, now, therefore, my Adonai, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, since Yahweh has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Verse 27, let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany 
my Lord. By the way, 13 times in this narrative, Abigail refers to David as my Lord. Five times she refers to herself as your maidservant. Again, demonstrating her humility. Verse 28, please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. She's pointing to the fact that she understands, she has heard that David is God's chosen man. David, despite his sins, is a man after God's own heart, and she understands that God has promised the throne of Israel to David. She's a woman that knows the word. Verse 28, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found you in all your days. You see the beauty and the wisdom here. She redirects David's rage against the foolish man Nabal and points him back to the Lord. She hearkens back to the very things that made David famous in the first place. David has been made famous by fighting God's battles for the glory of the Lord. And then this is brilliant in verse 29. And should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. You think this kind of poetic pointing to bundling up the enemies in a pocket and then being slung out like a sling is there anything in David's life that that might resonate with him? Beloved, do you see the, sorry, I just got goosebumps. I mean, you see the beauty and the, and the wisdom? This is an amazing, amazing woman. She invites David to act like a man who is close to the Lord. She invites David to act like a man who trusts the Lord. This is her internal beauty. This is her love for God evidenced by her, her love for his word. And when fears and doubts arise in holy women they war on those fears with the word of god that's what abigail does here that's even what the wives are exhorted to in first peter 3 after verse 5 and this woman of god's greatest influence is not her external beauty it's her internal beauty david is blessed by her discernment in verse 33 beloved in a post i made in the context of internal beauty and external beauty. This is a post I made on April 6, 2016. This is what I posted, what I said. <clears throat> exactly one year ago, my Margie was blessed to see me baptize our firstborn son 39 days before she went home to be with the Lord. Her sweet little body ravaged by cancer, having gained 60 pounds from taking steroids to fight the ever-increasing and pervading pain, blind in one eye from a tumor on her brain, lungs filling with fluid from cancer, <clears throat> my beloved was more beautiful than ever. She was and ever shall be the dictionary picture of a lifted countenance. Beloved, that is the wife-to-be, that is the woman to pursue. Now, going forward, when we look at the husbands, I know many of you, are looking forward to the commencement of the public flogging of husbands, especially you men. But before that transpires, I'm going to do a special one-off message on singles. And my heart was drawn as I've been thinking about husbands and wives uh, to singles as well. We'll talk, among other things, about the so-called gift of singleness. I will talk about what it's not, and I will give at least one dimension of what it is. So that will come before 
we launch into the subject of the husbands. But I want to finish with another illustration. The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's allegory of the journey and the pilgrimage of a man named Christian who was making his way through many dangerous toils and snares along the king's highway as he was going to the celestial city, to heaven. After a certain amount of time, he was traveling with his faithful companion, companion Hopeful, and they veered off of the king's highway into Bypath Meadow. And when they had lost their way, they encountered a giant named Giant Despair who captured them, beat them, drug them back to his castle called Doubting Castle and threw them in a dark dungeon. There were many days of great torment, of beating, even to the point that they were considering taking their own life. But there was a time when Christian remembered that he had a key in his bosom. Christian pulled a key out of his bosom. It was a key called Promise. And he basically opened the dungeon door, and then he went and he opened each door he went to from the dungeon door to the castle door to the door of the greats. The key or a key he had in his bosom would open it. And the giant despair heard the creaking of the gate, and he went to pursue Christian and Hopeful, but his arms began to fail him because Christian and Hopeful were safe from the giant despair because they're out of his jurisdiction. And the point of that is the only hope, the only escape from giant despair and doubting castle is the endurance of hope and the key called promise. Well, eventually Christian made his way to the celestial city. Christian had a wife whose name was Christiana. Christiana, at the beginning of the story, uh, mocked, as did Christian and Christiana's children, mocked Christian in his faith. But God stepped in and saved Christiana and the sons, and she decided to follow her husband, by extension, follow her Lord to the celestial city, along with her children and her friend named Mercy. Over the course of the second part of the book, Christiana gathers other pilgrims into her group, including honest, feeble mind, and valiant for truth. Uh, one of the stories is how Christiana encouraged her four sons and Mr. Greatheart and Mr. Honest to rescue Mr. Despondency and his daughter, Much Afraid, from Doubting Castle, and they destroyed Doubting Castle, and they killed Giant Despair. And finally, as Christiana made the end of her pilgrimage, she's standing on the riverbed of the River of Death, looking beyond towards the celestial city, where her beloved had gone on before her. As she and her company camped by the river, she received a letter that came to her from the celestial city, and this is what the letter said. Hail, good woman. I bring you tidings that the master calls for you and expects you will stand in his presence in clothes of immortality within these 10 days. Bunyan writes, when Christiana saw that her time was come and that she was the first of this company that was to go over, she called for Mr. Greatheart, her guide, and told him how matters were. Then she called for her children <clears throat> and gave them her blessing and told them that she yet read with comfort the mark that was set in their foreheads. It was glad to see them with her there and that they had kept their garments so white. Lastly, she gave to the poor what little she had and commended her sons and her daughters to be ready for when the messenger would come for them. Then she called for Mr. Valiant Truth, commended her children to them, and with great tenderness and strength, she summoned Mr. Dependency and his daughter, Much Afraid, whom they had rescued from the doubting castle and the giant despair and this is what she said to them you should with thankfulness forever remember your deliverance 
from the hands of giant despair. The effect of that mercy is you are brought here with safety. Be watchful. Cast away fear. Be sober and hope to the end. Bunyan writes, as Christiana crossed the river of death, the road was full of people to see her take her journey. But behold, all the banks beyond the river were full of horses and chariots, which were come down from above to accompany her to the city gate. So she came forth and entered the river with a beckon of farewell to those that followed her to the riverside. End quote. From that point, the story tells us that horses and chariots bore her upward to the city's gate, and she is seen no more. Beloved, my beloved Margie, even to the end, sensed that her gain was good. She smiled at the future. This is the wife to be. This is the woman to pursue. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for the power of your word. We thank you for the newness of life we enjoy in Christ. We thank you for the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who instructs us, who teaches us, who empowers us, who enables us to mortify and put to death the deeds of the flesh. We thank you for the fruits of the Spirit, for the fruit of the Spirit, which we can demonstrate and manifest by the good work that you do in our lives. We thank you, Lord God, for Santa and Bible Church. Thank you, Lord, for the wives that are here among us. Bless them greatly, Lord. Help them to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of you as their Lord and Savior. Bless them in their ministry in the home. Bless them in their ministry as wife and mother. If they work outside the home, bless them as their ministry in the workplace. And bless us as a church, as your adopted children, for your glory, for our joy, and for a witness to a lost and dying world. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.